Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Quick note before we begin, today's episode deals with sexual violence inflicted on Indigenous minors, and it will not be suitable for all listeners. The scandal broke in 2004 in a small British Columbia town number of sex charges in Prince George today. His name is David Ramsey. And the charges involve four girls under the age of 18, all of them prostitutes. On the left, former provincial court judge David W. Ramsey. And instead of taking the stand in his defense, in just a few minutes he will speak only one word, but speak it five times. Guilty. You would hope that if the story broke today that four minors were sexually assaulted by a judge, the media would not call them prostitutes. As the court heard, these children were victims. Ramsey used a 12-year-old who'd appeared in his court again and again, once remarking to her, saying that she'd been a bad girl. Ramsey used a 14-year-old who told investigators he said he would let me go off sentences if I don't tell anybody. 
Court was told Ramsey would bring some girls out past the prison and then down a road where he allegedly fought with one 15-year-old he had paid $60 for oral sex. He wanted his money back when she tried to put a condom on him. He pulled her hair. She had to wiggle out of her pants to get away. He warned her not to tell anyone or he'd have her killed, saying, you don't know who I know. Court was told Ramsey banged one 16-year-old girl's head off his dashboard, causing her to bleed. She escaped, but he caught her, pinned her to the ground, slapped her face, repeatedly called her a whore, and repeatedly sexually assaulted her. Before pleading guilty, Judge David Ramsey attempted suicide. Ultimately, he was sentenced to seven years in prison. He would serve four and then die in jail from terminal cancer. But the story did not end there because there were other alleged predators in Prince George. Two Mounties, constables, who had both worked here in the Prince George City Detachment in the 90s, are no longer on the job. I can confirm uh, today that uh, we have an investigation uh, regarding two members uh, in a criminal investigation regarding misconduct. The allegations of misconduct involve sexual relations with underage street girls working as prostitutes on the same streets these men had sworn to protect. The officers, suspended with pay from separate detachments in the province, are said to have been good buddies when in Prince George. Both began their mounted careers here. Both were transferred in the last few years. Apparently, before these particular allegations came to the attention of major crime officers working on the Ramsey file. Neither one of those two Mounties investigated were ever charged with anything. Even though one of them, according to his ex-wife, appeared in a video sexually harassing an indigenous teen. Sixteen years ago, that Mountie, his name is Joseph Kohut, kicked down the door to his ex-wife's home, and that video went missing. Today's episode is about everything that happened next, and it's about what didn't happen. The work of piecing this story together was not done by the RCMP. Now, this was an investigation conducted by Jessica McDermott, a freelance journalist whose report ran earlier this month in the Toronto Star. Her work was painstaking and methodical and conducted in a difficult environment. Researchers from the group Human Rights Watch also looked into Prince George, and they described the levels of fear that women in that city have towards the police as comparable to the level of fear found in post-conflict nations, post-transition nations like Iraq, the fear that communities have in those countries towards the security forces who've engaged in state abuse. So those were the circumstances under which Jessica McDermott, who wrote the book Highway of Tears about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, went about her work. And she will tell you the story that she found in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Greg DeYoung, Chantelle Baudwell, Noah Adams, Trish Van Bolderen, Delise Phillips, Daniel Beswick, Kaylin McGinty, and Jay. Hi, my name is Jay Gilday. I'm a Dene songwriter and performer from Yellowknife Northwest Territories, and I got hooked during the Thunder Bay series. I listen to Canada Land because I love the sick drum beat at the opening, and also Jesse's merciless dedication to journalistic integrity at the expense of both himself and the news. 
Listen, we are running out of time on this year's fundraiser. We've got just eight days to go. And without your help, we're not going to reach our goal. We've been really lucky over the years. You know, as the news industry has shrunk, collapsed really, Canada Land has always grown year over year. And, and that has allowed our ambitions to grow. And the sheer number of stories that we're able to cover has grown. And so we planned on growth. We set a target this year that will allow us to take on this growing stack of story tips that's been accumulating that will allow us to double down on, on climate coverage, on original reporting, on investigations, on, on our long form series, uh, shows like Ratfucker and The White Saviors, exactly the kind of journalism that we know our listeners value the most. But right now it's looking like we're not going to be able to do it. Not unless I'm able to get through to you and you become a Canada Land supporter. We are not that far off. We can do this. We need just 60 of you to join each day that's left in this campaign. You know, and at the start, we were crushing that. We were seeing hundreds of new supporters every day. But it has slowed to, to a trickle. So I am speaking right now to those of you who have been hearing me talk about this and who've been, you know, kind of maybe considering it, maybe thinking about doing it, but, but you know, maybe ultimately waiting to see how it was going to go. You know, maybe somebody else would step up and make this happen. It's not going to be anyone else. We need you. And I think this should be an easy decision. The cost of supporting us is less per month than you would spend on one lunch. Signing up is easy. It takes like a minute. And then we basically shower you with perks and bonus content and ad-free feeds and tickets to our live events and everything we can do to show you our appreciation. But the main thing that we give you when you support us is something that you get to give to everybody else. And that is our journalism, our original reporting, and a lot more of it. This is something that is going to cost you a lot less than Netflix or Disney Plus and it's something that you might end up valuing a whole lot more. It's something that you will know exists because of you. Please join us. Please become a supporter right now. Go to canadaland.com join or click the link in the show notes. I want to work for you. Our whole team does. And we will make you proud. Thank you. Jessica, can you start at the beginning, and perhaps the beginning here would be Prince George, British Columbia in the 90s and early 2000s? Yeah, so throughout the mid-90s, there had been rumors sort of circulating among mostly street-involved people about a judge who was a provincial court judge in Prince George, and allegations were arising that he was engaging services from sexually exploited teenagers on the streets, in some instances, assaulting them, abusing them. And I think for years, there were social workers and those sorts of organizations who were bringing this forward, but nobody really believed it could possibly be true. This judge was on all sorts of community organizations and the board of the local domestic violence shelter and was sort of this very respected member of society. But eventually the RCMP did launch a investigation and it was because one of the teenagers who had been abused by this judge then was appearing before him in court and it was a custody hearing for her son. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess she sort of had an emotional uh, breakdown reaction, told a social worker what was going on, and then agreed to come forward and actually give a statement to the police. So the police began to investigate. And not too long after that, the judge was suspended, then he resigned. He was charged with 10 counts of sexual assault, sexual abuse, abuse of power, things like this. And then when it went to trial, he pleaded guilty, which was a a bit of a surprise. So guilty of abusing youth between the ages of 12 and 16 over a period of about a decade. Now, during the investigation into the judge, allegations were also coming up about police officers, as many as nine RCMP officers engaging in similar behavior and, you know, other misconduct like planting evidence, this sort of thing. But up until the judge pleaded guilty, as a a supervisor in the RCMP would later say, they didn't really investigate those allegations because they didn't think it could possibly be true that as many as nine police officers could be, you know, doing bad in a reasonably small town and and they wouldn't be aware. Uh, But then when the judge pleaded guilty, it sort of added some veracity to the allegations made by these complainants. And they began to do an investigation into RCMP officers as well. Just to set the scene a little bit, you describe Prince George as a small city in central British Columbia, home to about 75,000 people, a rough town, a place where people from smaller communities further north ended up when they're fleeing bad situations or looking for better ones. And in this rough little town, we learn that a judge pleads guilty to sexually assaulting Indigenous teens, five charges. Yes. The first thing I have to remark on is just how similar that strikes me uh, to Thunder Bay, where we covered a similar case of a lawyer named Agnew Johnston. In so many ways, it echoes that story. What's different about this and so unique is that as awful as what happened was, it seems like the system kind of worked in this case. Like justice was done. It was done relatively swiftly compared to what we're about to get into. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the judge went to prison, I think, surprised a lot of people, you know, that he was actually convicted um, because this, I mean, the, the allegations against him certainly weren't new, nor are allegations against others in law enforcement in that area. I mean, Human Rights Watch went and did a, a massive report there in 2013 that had just like shocking, shocking allegations of of people in law enforcement and the justice system abusing vulnerable people uh, in Prince George and other sort of small northern communities in that area. And yeah, just to be clear, when we're talking about what Judge David Ramsey pled guilty to, the the charges included not just soliciting sex from Indigenous teens, but uh, sexual assault causing bodily harm, uh, paying for sex with minors, breach of trust, serious stuff. Yeah. I mean, some of the statements of facts that were um, used for his sentencing were, you know, picking up a young teenager, driving her out of town, beating her in a vehicle in a remote location, taking all of her clothes and leaving her there to hitchhike back to the city with no clothes on. It was really violent, serious stuff. Who is Dana Giro? Dana Giro is, uh, in the 90s at that time, she was a teenager who was sort of involved in, in street life. And she managed to, she survived, like she says, she's one of the, the very few of, of the group of friends she was in that actually survived and is still alive now. Some of her friends were complainants against the judge. And then she is the woman who, as a teenager, 
allegedly appears in this video that went missing. Well, let's get to the video, but um, she does remember a certain RCMP officer who's going to be a pretty big character in the story that everyone's about to hear. What does she remember about RCMP officer Joseph Kohut? She remembered and explained to me many interactions with him and with some of the other officers who who ultimately were investigated uh, for allegations of, of wrongdoing. Like I said, Prince George is a fairly small city, so people knew each other. And, you know, she remembers some fairly shocking sexual harassment and, you know, some other allegations. And so RCMP officer Joseph Kohut is one of the officers who is investigated in the wake of this judge pleading guilty. And what's the outcome of that investigation? So he was investigated and then he was suspended for a a period of time while there was a code of conduct investigation going on for any violations of the RCMP's rules for its officers. Ultimately, investigators found that those allegations were not substantiated and he was returned to full duties. And then he was an active RCMP officer for about two more years. And then he went on medical leave, sued the police force for malicious prosecution. And he remained on on medical leave until he retired in 2015. And what happened with that lawsuit that he filed against the, uh, the Matthews? It was settled out of court. We don't know the terms of it. And you describe him as uh, a Mountie since 91, who was well-liked, known for his charisma, his good looks, his tough guy demeanor. Other officers looked up to him. And in fact, in 2004, he marries another Mountie, Lisa McKenzie. Yes. That marriage does not last. They break up. And it's when Lisa McKenzie is selling the marital home, packing her belongings up, that she finds a box of mini videotapes. Yeah. So they had married in December of 2004. Joseph Kohut had just transferred to Kamloops, and she was transferring after him. By that May, the marriage had completely dissolved. And then, you know, a few months later, January of 2006, the house had sold. So she was in the basement in a storage room, she says, and she was going through belongings and, you know, sorting out her stuff, what remained of his stuff. And she says she came across this box of videotapes. And she thought that they would be of her son. So she popped one of the tapes in. And then she alleges that one of the tapes showed or she could hear Joseph Kohut's voice and another RCMP member. And they're driving around downtown Prince George. They pull up to a teenager on the street and then they're sexually harassing her saying, you know, show us your breasts and this sort of thing. And she does. And Lisa, because she's a police officer in Prince George, she recognized that teenager. She said it was was Dana Gerald. She put in another tape that she said showed, again, uh, her ex-husband at a doorway with some other RCMP officers sort of making fun of an Indigenous woman that he's questioning in the doorway. Mm-hmm. And then there was a third tape she put in, and she says it showed him making derogatory remarks to a previous um, romantic partner Uh, making fun of her when she appeared to be intoxicated and saying mean things. And so Lisa had taken that tape, put it aside because she was going to give it back to that woman. Uh, And the others she just put back in the box and, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with it at that point. So 
She was aware that her soon-to-be ex-husband had been under investigation for exactly this sort of thing, and now here is video evidence of him doing it. Allegedly, yes. So she had reached out to another, a more senior officer who was the only person that she really knew at the detachment. She hadn't been in Kamloops very long, and he'd been her kind of like an orientation officer when she got there. Uh, you know, I guess sort of shows you around how things work in your new detachment. So she got in touch with him and told him what she had found. And then she alleges that he said to her something to the effect of, don't tell anybody, hide them, I'll take care of this. And she presumably thought that, you know, he would do whatever needed to be done. She had just wanted him to get the tapes out of there, she said. Like, she didn't want anything to do with any of this. She was quite scared. And then a couple of days later, she was in her squad car patrolling, working, and she got a call from her supervisor who told her that she should uh, get home to board up her house because Joseph Kohut had just kicked in her door. So she says she went home. And of course, there was a big hole in the front of her house. Her young son was, I believe, like six or seven at the time. So she was just trying to get it covered up before he got home from school. And she gave a statement to the local detachment about the, you know, alleged break and enter. And, you know, that sort of didn't go anywhere. And then a few days later, she realized that the videotapes that she had found in the basement were gone. Kohut kicking down her door to get at certain belongings, that's a fact because he called it in himself and admitted to it. Like, we, we don't have to couch that in any way. We know that that's what he did. Yeah, he freely admitted it because he said she had changed the locks and he, he needed to get his things. So I'm pretty sure that's a crime. Was, were there any consequences for him doing that? So it was sent to the Crown for review. In BC, it's the, the Crown prosecutors that decide whether to lay charges. It was sent to the Crown and they deemed the file civil in nature. And so, no, he was never charged. Meaning that this is like a civil, it's like a domestic squabble. It's not a, it's not a breaking and entering. It's not a criminal matter. That's what they deemed it. You know, fast forwarding a decade or more, when this whole matter was looked at by an RCMP watchdog, they said something to the effect of because of where things were at in switching the title to the house, perhaps it would not have actually been a, a civil dispute. But, you know, that, that hasn't ever been, as far as I know, that's never been looked at again. And to be clear here, when it comes to allegations of wrongdoing as a police officer in Prince George, Joseph Kohut has denied any wrongdoing. And when it comes to Mackenzie's allegations about videotapes, you report that he did not respond to you. What happened next? I mean, after her door had, had been kicked in, when she realized that the tapes were gone, she did not report it again. Uh-huh. At that point, she says she was scared. And, you know, the way she felt the door thing had been handled. She was scared and she was a junior member. I think she'd only been, you know, two or three years experience in a new detachment, didn't know anyone. And so she just decided she would say nothing. So how did this progress then? So fast forward five years and she had been speaking with a new spouse who was also an RCMP officer and told him about the tapes. 
And he thought, you know, like, this is really, this is really serious. If what she says happened, and, and, and those tapes, you know, are as she alleges, this is a really serious thing. He encouraged her to report it. And he suggested that she talk to a senior uh, RCMP member named Gary Kerr, who is a staff sergeant in charge of major crimes in Kamloops, and said, you know, this is someone you can trust. You should give Gary a call. And so she did. And what did he do about it? So Gary, you know, he told me his initial reaction was expletive, expletive. (laughs) He was really shocked and just said, you know, this would be, if, if what she alleges happened, this is really serious. So he immediately sent an email to one of the top people in BC, in charge of the BC RCMP, and said, we really need to speak urgently. Uh, the next morning was on the phone with that person. It was relayed to some other top people in, in the RCMP, all of whom agreed, this is serious. We need to investigate this. We need to interview Lisa McKenzie. And so Gary's understanding was that that process was going to start. And did it? No. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Somebody was assigned to interview Mackenzie, and it was somebody from the local detachment who she had said she didn't want to talk to somebody from the local detachment. She didn't trust them. And then I guess there was a few emails that went back and forth. She canceled the interview at the last minute. And then nobody tried to contact her again. That it just sort of disappeared for months. And and Gary was really surprised that he hadn't heard anything about it. He'd gotten no updates. 
nobody had come back and said, okay, we looked at this and, you know, there's nothing to worry about or, or anything. He'd heard nothing. Then he had mentioned it to a senior officer who he'd known for many years, who was based in Alberta. And that officer told him that he would intervene, he would get something rolling. So then it was December of 2011 when finally someone interviewed Lisa and Gary about Lisa's allegations. So finally, in 2011, almost six years after she first noticed the tapes had gone missing, she does give her statement. And this has been kicked up the chain and she has senior Mounties making some noise about this and asking uh, that this be taken seriously. What is the outcome of that process? Kerr and Mackenzie are interviewed December 2011. And Mackenzie, in the course of her interview, tells the inspector that she does still have this one tape, the tape that she had taken out planning to give it to Joseph Kohut's previous romantic partner. Mm -hmm. So the inspector says, can you, you know, bring the, the tape to this lawyer where the interviews had taken place, bring the tape so that we can pick it up. Um, and apparently, based on some of the documents, the inspector and other, other people in the RCMP believed that this tape was the tape that might have evidence. Mackenzie had never said that that was the case, but that was their understanding. So they had asked for her to give this tape to them. Uh, she did. And nobody picked it up until August of 2012. So eight months later. In the meantime, Gary Kerr had retired and then in his retirement heard nothing, absolutely nothing for another three years. And what happened three years later? So then it was January 2015 and it was just still bothering him. So he wrote to Bob Paulson, the commissioner of the RCMP, he, and laid out these concerns with the allegations that he had received from Mackenzie and passed forward for action and his, his feeling that there had been no action. Nine months after that, he received a letter saying that the allegations had been reviewed you know, basically everything had been looked at. It had been sent to the Crown for assessment of whether to lay charges. And there were no charges indicated. Basically, you know, the matter had been looked at thoroughly and it was closed. He didn't believe that. And so the next summer, he filed the complaint to the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission with these allegations. So that's the independent agency that is tasked with being the watchdog of the RCMP. So he sent a letter outlining this entire thing to them for their consideration. Can I just ask you about one thing you just said? He wrote to the RCMP commissioner, Bob Paulson, the head of the RCMP, and gets a response saying that, yeah, we looked at this, we sent it to the Crown, and everybody decided not to pursue it. And he thinks he's being lied to? Why would he think that? Yeah, I don't really have a good answer for that. He had been spoken to in the supposed investigation that had taken place after he had complained to the commissioner, but he hadn't received any updates. Nobody would tell him what they were doing or what might be going on with this investigation, and he didn't believe that it had been adequately dealt with. 
That's quite something that he would get that high level of response and, and actually get a response, but not trust it and then pursue a different form of recourse. What was that form of recourse? So when the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission received his complaint, they launched a public interest investigation into, into the allegations. They spent two years investigating what had gone on. So in that process, they interviewed probably 20 or so uh, members who'd been involved. They collected documents, emails. They tried to collect case files and evidence. Um, and then they sort of review it all. Uh, after two years, they put together an interim report, which goes to the RCMP commissioner for the commissioner to consider. Often when one of these reports goes, it'll have findings and recommendations. And then often the RCMP will push back a little bit and say, well, we don't agree with that, or this is what we're going to do to address this instead. And, and then eventually they'll, they'll come out with a final report. In this instance, the CRCC submitted the interim report. There was no response from the RCMP for over two years. Uh, and when the re response finally came in March 2021, the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, now just agreed with all the findings and recommendations. I mean, in this extended story, two years is like light speed that the civilian commission looked into this. And going by your reporting here, the report says that what's allegedly recorded on these tapes could constitute supporting evidence of Kohut's suspected criminal conduct with underage sex trade workers in Prince George. The report found that there is no indication that anyone was clearly designated to lead an inquiry into Staff Sergeant Kerr's report of Constable McKenzie's allegations or that a file was created to track the matter. So that sounds like this report said, this is really serious and nobody did a damn thing about it. That's, uh, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment, yeah. And then the commissioner uncharacteristically in terms of how the RCMP commissioners tend to respond to reports like this says, takes her two years, but she says, I agree. Yeah. Now, 2018 and Mackenzie, the Mountie whose door was smashed in, whose, whose husband made these tapes, she's been on medical leave. She's been battling mental health challenges that she attributes to her experiences in the force, you report. And the following year, 2019, she files a lawsuit alleging harassment. And now this long saga ends with her retiring from the RCMP, like now. Yeah. Where does this all settle? What is the final outcome of this? Well, the RCMP is um, supposed to be addressing the recommendations that were made by the CRCC. So, I mean, the primary recommendation was that without delay, there is an assessment of the allegations and if warranted, there is an investigation of the allegations. So that recommendation has been with the RCMP since they received an interim report in 2018. And then the final report in March of last year, so over 18 months ago, it's not clear if that's happening. The RCMP told me, you know, at the 11th hour, right before the story was coming out, that there was a review underway. What that constitutes, I don't know. They didn't answer any questions about that. I do know that neither Mackenzie nor Kerr has been approached by anybody from the RCMP 
uh, about these allegations. And as they relay it, as RCMP officers, and, you know, Kerr particularly was a, an investigator for the RCMP for decades, said that the first step would always seem to be that you would go to the source of the allegations. And they have not been contacted so far. So what will happen? And who knows? You went to the source of some of the allegations. You've spoken to Dana Giro. What does she have to say about all this? Well, initially, I mean, I I talked to Kerr and then tracked down Mackenzie, and she was willing to sit down with me for hours and and walk me through everything um, she alleges happened. And then I sort of thought, well, what if you do the investigation that the RCMP apparently didn't do and find who, you know, the the teenager who was in the video? So tracked down uh, Dana, and she was willing to meet up and she didn't remember a specific incident as Mackenzie described it, but she certainly remembered and alleged a, a great deal of sexual harassment from RCMP officers, including Joseph Kohut, during her teenagerhood. She remembered him having a video camera. I mean, one of the really striking things to me was how terrified she was still mm-hmm. to say anything about this. You know, she doesn't want anyone to know where she lives even a general area. She's still terrified of the police. This is an incredibly frustrating story. If the question was, were officers of the court, were authority figures sexually abusing and assaulting underage indigenous kids in Prince George, B.C., well, we know the answer. I mean, a judge pled guilty to that almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And... In the process of his admission, we learned that it's probably not just him and the cops are involved. And you would think in a sane country that there would be moral outrage and that would lead to now let's let's find out who was involved and let's make a clean break of this so we can move on with some kind of with some kind of dignity and some kind of assurance that this is a, a safe place for the most vulnerable people. And it takes almost 20 years just to kind of nail down what everybody knew in 2004. One of the things that was called for at the time of, of Ramsey's uh, guilty plea in this investigation into RCMP officers was, you know, a public inquiry or some kind of investigation into what had gone on and, and sort of airing this out publicly and dealing with it. And, you know, that never happened, clearly. You know, the procedural trail that, that gets left, it's such a story of, of kind of human wreckage when, when we look at all the different people involved and the denial and the evasion of just some sort of process of, of revelation of truth. You know, you, it's told through lawsuits and people's stories of, of, of trauma and harassment and abuse. Like, it's, it's such an endeavor to cover stuff up, isn't it? What do you mean by endeavor? I guess... When you consider the mental damage to Lisa McKenzie of not feeling safe because she can't trust her colleagues, and what is the psychological toll to Dana Giro decades later, because they know on a common sense level that most of their the time in these narratives, it was times when they were powerless and other people were conspiring. I think another really important factor is just the distrust of the police that resulted from this. And it's profound in Northwest BC. I mentioned that Human Rights Watch report. And I remember it just struck me that one of the researchers described the level of fear of people they were interviewing about abuse at the hands of police as similar to in post-conflict countries such as Iraq and Sierra Leone. 
And then also this area, Prince George, is where for decades there have been many mostly indigenous girls and women going missing and being murdered. And when people don't feel they can trust the police for help if they need it or to provide information to when things like violent crimes do happen, the effects of that are, you know, potentially deadly. Jessica, I imagine it was a tremendous amount of work to untangle all this. Um, Thank you for sharing the story with us. Thanks for having me. That is your Canada Land. I hope you enjoyed it. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com, and I read everything that you send. This episode is produced by our audio editor and technical producer, Tristan Capicione. Thanks this week to Archie Mann. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Reminder to the journalists out there that we are looking for stories about Christmas in the newsroom or holidays in the newsroom. Really, anything you can share about uh, times when you might have been home with your loved ones or on vacation, but instead you were in a newsroom, we want to hear about it. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. We're putting a show together on that topic. Listen, once again, if you value this podcast, this is the time to support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, here's what you're going to get. Premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and really good bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. Great one coming up with Matea Roach. Many more to follow. More than anything, you will be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. Join us now, click the link in the show notes, or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.